Rough transition, and good evening. Today is Monday, June 21st, 2021. I am your host, Evan George, and welcome to Bostopian Nightly News. Tonight, we're going to have a shorter show than usual. For fun, I will be trying out a different light setup, so let me know. I think I look a lot brighter and a lot paler, but I'll leave that up to you to judge. And the top story for tonight is going to be about the air conditioning use, what it's doing to our electrical grid, how it is actually creating a vicious cycle. I got to speak about it a little bit during the podcast, but did not get to cover it during the TikTok rundown, so I figured now would be a good time to do it. And then we're finally going to look at the Boston Pride Forum that was a mist, a raft with controversy with both Kim Janey and Andrea Campbell deciding not to attend. So we're going to jump around with that. And jumping right into it, and this is a good time as always for me to tell the TikTok audience, uh, hello, and I recommend hopping over to Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, and if anyone comes across this for a clip, like, subscribe, five stars, if you want to continue to support whatever version of local media I think this is. Now, as I said before, and let me set up the graphic for people. Air conditioning usage, and this was something that I spoke about a few weeks ago, talking about a vicious cycle where because of climate change, the global temperature is increasing, which results in us using air conditioning more for mostly health reasons, but also just for general comfort. That then increases our energy usage, which then releases more carbon dioxide in the air, which heats the planet more, which leads to more air conditioning usage in what is a vicious cycle. But now I have some numbers to back up what was a pretty well-known hypothesis at the time. And in New England's heat wave that we experienced in June, Minimize myself a little bit. Maybe go to the other side of the screen. Here we go. We had five days of 90 degree plus heat, which is the longest June heat wave in nearly a century. And what this has resulted in is peak electricity demand culminating in 36 million extra pounds of carbon into the atmosphere. Now, I, like many people, have no idea how to actually equate that or figure out what 36 million pounds of carbon looks like, but it's roughly the equivalent of running 3,551 cars for a year straight or 18 million pounds of coal burning. And the cycle I described, quoted now by uh, Joseph Daniel from the Senior Energy Analyst with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Climate change is driving more and hotter heat waves, which is forcing us to use our air conditioning units more, which is driving up emissions and causing more climate change, and so on and so forth, perpetuating itself. By the end of the century, experts say Massachusetts could see anywhere between 13 and 56 days of extreme heat each year, whereas the average was only four days per year from 1971 to 2000, and that's always another important point. More than half of the carbon that has been emitted into the air has occurred during my lifetime. 
during which Earth Day was decades old at that point. This was a well-known phenomenon that it's tough to say our elitists ignored because they very much knew what was happening, and it benefited capital, it benefited American industries, it benefited a small select group of multimillionaires and billionaires to maintain the status quo of our energy usage. There's some amazing graphs that for the people who are watching visually, you can see from June 5th to June 9th, high temperatures spiked across New England, causing a 62.2% increase in peak energy usage compared to the same period the week before. Looking further. And this now talks about air pollution. During a heat wave, emitted pollution gets trapped in stagnant air. I guess it doesn't rise as quickly, causing the air quality index to spike. The higher the air quality index means more pollution, which means we are at greater health risk. Across Massachusetts, as the temperature rose, air quality declined. EMS saw a 44% increase in call volume over that period. And ultimately, as I said before, we have two solutions to this. We can either, one, go the route we have been going for the last 50 years, which is of austerity, the inverse of Jimmy Carter saying, put on a sweater, but continuing with that trend, telling people that they will just have to suffer more, use air conditioning less, or the far more likely scenario, simply just raising the cost of energy, making it so only the wealthier will be able to stay acclimated. Or we could transition our energy use to renewable energy, using the existing fossil fuel infrastructure we have to create a whole new energy grid in the hopes of dismantling and no longer relying on the very fossil fuels which is choking the planet. After which point, invest in some carbon capture technologies, otherwise referred to as trees, and get the carbon out of the air that's currently there. But if you don't do those two things, there's very little we're going to be able to do to stop this vicious cycle. And now with that, let's go to the forum. So I glanced at it a little bit just to see what they talked about. I am mostly interested in how they addressed what their decision to come, as I said before, or just as a recap, Boston Pride has been boycotted for at least the last two years now, but um, concerns about it certainly predate that, pointing to the fact that the board of Boston Pride, I believe, is predominantly or all white, and they have in the past been accused of being, um, I will use the phrase transphobic, if that is too harsh, then at least exclusionary to the trans community, and to also gay, queer, bi, people of color. And so I think it was last year, some groups broke off from Boston Pride, which is still, I think, the largest parade in New England, and they started forming the rights um March for Trans Lives rally, which happened last year, which happened again this year. And the March for Trans Lives, that coalition, had their own forum. 
If someone can find me a recording of it, I will absolutely go through it. I have been unsuccessful. But basically, Kim Janey and Andrea Campbell declined this invitation, went to that uh, forum instead. Whereas Michelle and then the three conservative candidates, Anissa, John, and John, all attended the Boston Pride. So after their intros, they then got to circle back and ask the candidates, why did you decide to come? What do you think of the boycott? So on and so forth. So I'm going to start there. I have not heard any of their responses. We're going to listen to how they handle that question. I've marked a few more questions they ask. We'll listen to that. We'll have a nice relaxing evening as we all recover from the long day's events. And if you know what I'm talking about, then you know what I'm talking about. Because today was rough for a lot of people. Let me just play around for the those watching visually. Minimize the screen here. I feel bad for the people who listen to this out of the podcast. But what are you going to do? You just got to watch it live. All right. And I like being on the left. Fantastic. Let's hope I didn't just uh, knock that off. I had, thought I had this set to the right. And recognizing the pain, the continued marginalization of as men, I would be QIA plus community, and having stable living. I protect. We'll take it back to Mr. Alpha. You're only over by 30 seconds, so I'll just put that on my, my tally here. <laughs> I, saw you, I saw you, John, but let me just say this. Let me say this. All right, come on, John. The issues of the you shouldn't even. Two to three minutes and 30 seconds, and then I'll get, yeah. you, get you back in each of the 30 seconds. <laughs> I'll go, I'll go on the tally as well. Uh, thank you so much. I apologize. And, I thought I had this uh, marked correctly. for joining us in the city of Boston. The founded activists who have been. I'm going to find it. Don't you worry. Way. We have to. We need to opening speech or three or four, whatever you're feeling. <laughs> I know. Isn't this refreshing? Oh, come on. But you were celebrated. Go forward. I apologize. Let me get this right. Come on, you can load. Still loading. Boop. What happened? Oh no, expensive technical difficulties. All right, I think I deserve credit for how fast I just brought that up. All right, we are back. I have it on the right thing. Fantastic. Uh, thanks, Sue, for that question. I think that the, the challenges to uh, creating these spaces, especially as they've... And just to summarize again, they are now being asked to, to address about the boycott, why did you attend this hearing, so on and so forth. I have not heard any of the candidates' answers up to this relate to building new business and, and building small business. Oh my God. IA people, uh, obviously Stonewall was a, was a- I'm sorry, I thought I had it right. This is ridiculous. Opening remarks really to elevate certain issues that I feel are important. You know, on the QT BIPOC, somebody rocks for your neighbor, a lot of it, you know, but- See, we need to be pushing for steps to implement tremendous change. Way to go. How did this I not work? Life trying to make some of those changes reverse. 
I knew I was going to watch it from there. I get it. Okay, Michelle, we'll figure out the spot. And I just want to say, that is Michelle's mic that's clipping. That is not my new mic. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. There we go. Grown from activism and particularly the activism of black trans women, founded on the idea that every human being deserves equal rights under the law, has begun to be co opted by some of our biggest corporations with deplorable human rights records. And in Boston, we have to address the uncomfortable truth that for many years, right here in, in our city, we have seen an organization that has not stood shoulder to shoulder with activists who have been pushing for people over profits, for Black Lives Matter for social justice and the intersectionality in our city. And so we all are part of this fight. Uh, I'm here today to make sure that we are engaging in dialogue directly. And I know that there have been recent news and steps uh, that some of the asks have been uh, moving forward, but I want to just lift up the demands for democratization and accountability from activists in Pride for the People and trans resistance. And uh, you know, as, as others have mentioned, the, the trans emergency fund Black Lives Matter campaign we need to make sure that we are centering the lived experiences of queer trans BIPOC residents in Boston to take real action for democratization of decision-making and not just cosmetic reforms. I know I want to lift up the fact that there was a boycott of, of this event and others and just say straight on that I am here because I believe the way we move forward in difficult situations is to move forward together. Pride belongs to the people, not to corporations, not to individuals or, or specific board members, but to the people. And in Boston, we have always led the way. We have always stood up for the important fights. We have always charged uh, head first into investing in the ways that we, our destinies are tied together. And we know that we make progress when we listen to, advocate together, and center communities that are most impacted. Uh, so I'm here today and very grateful for this space to be discussing issues that are important to Boston's LGBTQIA community, which are important to Bostonians across the board. We need to be pushing for advocacy. We need to be pushing for uh, visibility. And most of all, policies and investments to continue fighting and advancing the fighting for and advancing the rights of LGBTQIA Bostonians. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Oh, Matthew, very glad I listened to that. That was a great answer. Um, to clarify something that Michelle said, one of the biggest grievances against the Pride Board, I'll call it, is their refusal to support Black Lives Matter as an organization, as a group, as a call during last year's George Floyd protests. They completely stayed quiet on that, again, refusing to endorse any of the actions that were taking place. And I'm glad uh, Michelle referenced that. To you, Representative uh, Santiago, uh, two to three minutes for uh, an opening speech, or three to four, whatever you're feeling. <laughs> I know, isn't this refreshing? I'm not muting you. You must all be like, oh, I, I, I don't have an enemy to listen to John Santiago for three minutes straight, so we're going to try to skip. So as we continue these just together. I also, as things are polling now, he doesn't have a show. Here it is. That's just what I was trying to find. I think it was really important to note, and I think 
by certainly the four of us here with you this evening, that we believe in conversation. We certainly believe in this idea of coming together, but we also believe in not just the conversation, but that the conversation leads to the work, which leads to the action, which leads to certain outcomes. I'm committed, I'm certain uh, those here this evening, that we're all committed to those actionable items, that we are all committed to the work that is ahead of us, especially in this space. Anybody have anything to add to that or ready to move on? No, and I would just add that, listen, like we're here to start a conversation, right? You know, obviously there have been issues. And I, I always want to highlight whenever candidates talk about, you know, we're here to have a conversation. We're here to do the work. And I mean, as, as Anissa just went into to a diatribe, 99 times out of 100, it is a cynical, it is really just empty rhetoric. It doesn't actually mean anything. To me, it's much more valuable of where is power and are you allowing the democratization of power, not the democratization of we will hear you talk and then make decisions for you. But I, I can't stand when I hear people like uh, John Santiago and Anissa use that as just kind of a blanket statement. Within Boston Pride that have resulted in, in what has you know happened the last couple of weeks. And you know, I'm here, and I think what was said throughout you know the opening remarks really to elevate certain issues that I feel are important, you know, with respect to the QT BIPOC community, because without a doubt, those are some of the most vulnerable people in our community today. So we're here to you know hold ourselves accountable, to hold pride accountable, and really to elevate these important issues into the dialogue. Okay, we're ready. Chief uh, Barnes? You know, so I'll, I'll add one more thing that I didn't mention. I think it was important that um, not only that we, did we allow space for the um, queer, trans, BIPOC forum, but you know I think Linda Linda stepping down was a huge statement, right? That you know Boston Pride was ready to make some dramatic move. Linda was the president, the board of directors, chairperson. I don't know the official title, but the head person of the board who resigned. Towards new leadership and toward a new day. So for me. Um, you know, that created space. It created an opening for us, in fact, to come in and have a conversation, knowing that the commitment is real to try to make some space and move to make some changes. Councilor Wu, do you want to have the last word on this? Sure, I'll just echo the, uh, what sounds like um, a shared sense of really wanting to lean into conversations with our community members, which you know, are, are often difficult when we most need to have that, that accountability and have that dialogue. And just to emphasize that, um, Campaigns are important. Elections are important because this is a time for voters to hold candidates accountable, to seek the commitments from us as well, and to get us on the record about important issues and to share and exchange views. And so uh, for me, and I would guess for, some, for my colleagues as well here, the chance to um, lean in and be accountable in that way and to go in any space possible where we have the chance, I, I, I see that as responsibility of, of us as candidates to, to make ourselves available for that type of accountability too. Right, thank you, and thank you to all of you. Uh, so we're going to go to our questions now, our standard questions, three to four minutes and answers, and invite folks watching to also offer. So there are only about 15 lesbian bars left in the United States of America, 25 if you're being generous and counting bars that do one night a week. I think there used to be 15 lesbian bars in Central Square, Cambridge alone. Um, so what that represents is a shrinking of safe spaces for LGBTQIA people. Uh, obviously, Stonewall was a, was a bar, and that's what we're marking here. But I'm wondering, as mayor, what would you do to try to carve out more safe spaces, more LGBTQIA particular areas, so that people can be themselves and feel safe? We'll go with you, Councillor Esk. Can anyone fact check that there is only 15 lesbian bars in the whole United States? I've lived in different parts of Boston, and I, I'm not sure what uh, classifies or categorizes as a lesbian bar, but... I mean, I live on Dot Ave, and there's quite a few places which 
primarily a known as that have a um I'm blanking now on the the LGBTQ flag out front. There's three in walking distance of me. I'm I'm very unsure of what fifteen is. I'd I'd love the classification. Um, I'm very curious about what, what defines it as that. Maybe owned. Is it uh fifteen lesbian bars like that are owned by lesbians? Fifteen gay bars that are owned by our gay owners? I'd be curious. I'm trying to find the definition. Uh, thanks, too, for the question. I think that the, the challenge is to uh, creating these spaces, especially as they relate to building new business and, and building small business, that we continue to see too many of our residents, especially those that may be experiencing isolation or uh, disenfranchisement, not able to access those opportunities to, to start a new business, whether it's capital, whether it's technical assistance, whether it's um, support through that process to open to find the proper location to build a strong business plan to work in partnership with the city uh, to get to that to get to that place. And when we think about bars in particular, it is um, still very difficult for women, um, women of color, women who are um, LGBTQ identifying to access those those resources and those opportunities because for too long they've been uh, disenfranchised and disconnected from the system. As mayor, we need to make it easier for Bostonians to do business here in the city of Boston, whether it's opening a new business, creating new economic opportunity, or doing business with the city, so in and with the city. I'm committed to that. And making sure along the way... And actually, it might, that might just be me being, I'm going to call it myopic, which is... Um, I, I drew it out to all members of the LGBTQ community rather than focusing just on... Like, lesbian bar specifically for, uh, for lesbians. So that was probably my mistake because the, the bars that I'm referring to on Dot Ave, I don't know if I'd call them lesbian bars, but I think they primarily are known as and present as I'll call them gay bars. And again, I don't know if that's the proper vernacular. Our, uh, our LGBT, LGBT. And I've been to the cubbyhole when I used to live in New York. Community has opportunities to access that for themselves and to build. Exactly. I, I live very close to, to Bebop. opportunity within their communities, whether it's a geographical community or, or a, an identifying community. That's important to me. It is what I've done on the city council and will certainly lead on as mayor of the city. All right. Are they Thank all going to talk about us. capital grants to small businesses? Um, yeah, you're right. We've lost a lot of spaces. We, you know, it wasn't that long ago we lost uh, Machine, Ramrod. Um, you know, it's, we need to be intentional if we're going to create these spaces. We need to be intentional. Yeah, like, I've been in the machine. So that, the machine um, wouldn't count as a lesbian bar, right? Um, I, I, that would sort of just be kind of classified as a gay bar. Recently, and making sure that we can value different communities by creating social infrastructure. This is important for every community in the city of Boston, including the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, I would start a fund. It, you know, capital is typically one of the biggest barriers for uh, creating any kind of uh, social space, whether a bar or restaurant. Um, it's incredible. I partnered that acquisition fund with a or acquisition or build out fund with a technical assistance fund that allow people to create uh, business plans and think about how to make these places work and sustainable. Um, it's work that I've done as Chief of Economic Development. And the, the, one of the primary reasons I, I I am more than fine with small business loans, small business grants as part of a small sliver of an overall initiative or economic plan. But if you were talking about um, grants for small businesses, you are already right now talking about a very, very small percentage of people who are actually going to be able to qualify and get those grants. You only have X amount of small businesses. But secondary, I mean, how many small businesses fail within the first five years? Particularly, you're talking about bars, restaurants, clubs. And so to use public funding to give a small select group of people 
who have access and probably have some network to get those funds, even if you do make it a little bit more available, and then of those, half will close, there's got to be a better use of our public funding. Now, if you want to transition to a public bank that can give much more realistic um, interest rates for small business growth, particularly for marginalized communities. But again, I think if it's public dollars, there needs to be some level of public ownership, not just us giving a few people lottery tickets and hoping they cash out and now you have a small business that is successful. It's just not a good use of public funds. The work that I would do uh, with the community to create some safe space in Boston, we need it. We're a stronger city with it. We're a stronger economy with it. And I'd make it priority. Somebody should and transition to talking about LGBTQ youth and homelessness again and again, uh, safe spaces. Folks are from the community with the, uh, what is all, wrong with you, Mike Michelle? Uh, DJs and, and others who have been building a, a community despite now fewer and fewer spaces and further and further apart. Is that making the, the idea of a, a bar call or, or connecting the community geographically very difficult? Um, I agree with what's been said about the need to ensure that we are changing the structures and remo removing barriers to entrepreneurship overall and centering community in that. How we run our licensing for small businesses right now inherently is perpetuating structural racism, it's perpetuating disparities and inequities in all of Boston. If you look at, if you think about how many restaurants exist uh, where you can sit down and get a drink, serve alcohol, there are only eight uh, black owned restaurants that have liquor licenses, right? There, there are structural disparities built in there. And so we really need to get at uh, how we take down those barriers. And I would say at the same time, building community and Creating the infrastructure for community to be together is something that the city of Boston can do in tandem to encourage pop-ups in the many vacancies that we now see across our small business districts and working with the LGBTQIA community. This is the, and I, I recommend switching over, watching it on uh, Twitch or Facebook or YouTube because then you can actually see what I'm watching. This is the Boston Pride Forum. And as I mentioned earlier, if anyone can find me the forum that was held in opposition to this that Andrea and Kim Janey attended, by the Rights um, March for Trans Lives Coalition. I will absolutely watch that one as well, but I cannot find that one. Pop-ups that can uh, be a, a foothold and, and start to build that, that business towards a, a more permanent location. I love your gnomes, by the way. Location, creating the ability for special events to happen, block parties. I'm, I'm so excited there's now a block party fund. I've been calling for a block party on every single block of the city to be something that is standard. That is how we connect people, not just for uh, building trust. That's community, cool. I like that. Block party fund. Now you talk in my language. Are, um, planning for our recovery, that there is intentionality and a connection with every other bit of policy that supports small businesses. Right? We need public transportation to be open longer across the city. We need to remove barriers for payment for the, the fares for that transportation. We need housing prices to be mm -hmm. under control and rents to be manageable in order to ensure that working class and, and low income. Bostonians Do you sell them? I, I, I saw you did an auction once. I'd love to try to figure out how to get one. We can talk over Johnny's not that important. Um, what happened to the tea being up later? Do you have a late night service for the tea? Because we've attempted that, I think, three times in the past 10 years, sometimes using private buses, sometimes allowing the tea to go a little bit later, and they basically give up on it instantly. Part of it is they do not want a successful public transportation system, period. Absolutely. 
All right, well, next time you do another round, let me know. Uh, but right now, to my knowledge, there is no plans to extend or bring back late night service on the three. Council is going to be preparing me, recommending certain things, but also having certain liaisons to get the work done. I'm committed to engaging you, listening to you, working with you hand in hand to really provide those opportunities so you can lean, so you can create the wealth that you deserve. Thank you, all of you. Those are great answers. So I want to talk about our LGBTQI seniors. Um, many of the seniors obviously represent and reflect the challenges of the communities that they also, the intersectionality of the communities they represent. Uh, lesbians, uh, especially our seniors, tend to be making a lot less than their straight peers because many of them were unable to marry. And many of our couples also were unable to have the benefits, the financial benefits of marriage um, due to the exclusion. And many of them are in senior housing and in public housing, facing some of the same discrimination and bigotry that their entire life because sometimes it's hard for people to change. As mayor, um, what services, what would you be doing in particular to aid and support Boston's LGBTQI seniors? Councilor Asabi Georgia. This will be interesting. Now, this is a challenge that's faced um, by women across the board. The wage gap is very real. And, and certainly through your question, you identify uh, the, the added challenge that our older, um, I almost used the word elderly, I guess I did right there, but our, you know, the, the older um, women within the lesbian community, the experiences they have and how real that wage gap is for them and that it truly does impact them in a, in a very different way. And then when we add on uh, women of color, we know that the differences between white women, white women and men the differences with black women and then Latino women and the, the very real uh, wage gap that exists. We need to make sure that in this case in particular, that our Office of Women's Advancement, who's done a tremendous amount of work over the last many years. See, part, like, part of why I like watching this is because I knew that most of these candidates were not going to have a good response to this. And so Anissa didn't, couldn't really grasp like the full concept of the question. And so instantly just pivoted to the wage gap. So like to try to talk. No, exactly. So what what the question was trying to get at is to basically talk about senior housing in Boston and then particularly for the LGBTQ community who just disproportionately have not had the same access to have either a private residence or some sort of in-home support because of a lifetime of discrimination, therefore is in senior housing, they are facing discrimination there, but there's also just a lack of it in Boston. So if you did not pivot to senior housing and then just highlight and recognize the disproportional aspect that the LGBTQ community faces, then you're not answering the premise of the question. Anissa had no response or didn't understand the premise of the question. And so just pivoted to something that she can just talk about easier, which is actually what you're supposed to do, uh, what they train you in comms and politics, is if you don't understand the question, just answer a different question. So she she heard something about money and women, and then all right, wage gap. Now I'm curious how uh, the two Johns will handle it, and I'm hoping Michelle knows to pivot to housing. So let's see. And uh, the pathway to home ownership is another just complete 
pipe dream. It, it's nothing but telling an auditorium filled with thousands of people that if you're lucky, two of you will get a golden ticket. I mean, it can be part of an overall strategy, but there is no pathway to home ownership that is realistic for any sort of a large scale um, solution to either wealth inequality or the housing crisis we find ourselves in. Let's see if any anyone here talks about senior housing, you, publicly funded Appreciate senior housing. I think uh, we have to recognize, in fact, that. Um, Come on, John. What do you got? Housing uh, resources. Okay, there we go. John understood. John got the pause. And engage the federal government in making sure that more is available. But in Boston, in fact, we I think um, have have some things to celebrate. I'm very excited. That was a tough so question to go first for. So even though I don't think Anissa would have been able to handle, now she would be able to answer it better. But John knew how to answer that, did John? Even though there's no point in you being in the race. It's the first of its kind, but it shouldn't be the last. As mayor, I'll make sure that in our RFP for city land, as we're looking for housing, affordable housing, that this is one of the things we provide some extra scoring for. We'll make sure people understand that we support. I'll make sure, in fact, that we continue to fight for more funds from the federal government just to make senior living available because we just lack it all over the place. And as we do that, that we take care of our LGBTQIA plus community in the city of Boston. We have an example and we can do more. And I, and I did hear as well as, uh, you know, my colleague, uh, uh, Councilor Saudi George, that, you know, the lesbians make less. Why? Because the, the gender wage gap is real. Um, as Chief of Economic Development was uh, proud to support our 100% talent compact uh, to try to get to women uh, gender pay equity. Uh, it's important. Those workshops are important. They show results. 48% of the women who took the salary negotiation workshops were able to increase their salaries, increase their wages. All right, well, now that John answered the question effectively, I'm going to hop forward. I'm curious what their last question is, and we're going to call it at that. The fencing, leadership, coordination, and listening and being a community. I mean, honestly, they give them like two to three minutes to answer the question. First ever, just give me the answer. And what the issue was, can you name one LGBTQ community organization that you've worked with and what the issue was that you worked with? All right, that was a good good last question. But now they have Michelle go first, so the other three get to Google and quickly think of something. I've been proud to work with Bagley and to partner and learn. I just, the amazing youth there uh, to make sure that the first ever uh, downtown fully uh, expansive space was opened and and to see that through from the idea to construction and renovation to the the grand opening was incredible great thank you chief Barros, uh, an organization you work with an initiative you worked on um uh, theater offensive uh making sure that they were able to try to secure space um in Fenway. it's a it's a big challenge it's an important one uh in the lgbtqi community and and also for our artists and others and so it, it's one that's dear america representative santiago before I was an elected official, I was very involved in the HIV AIDS space. I had an uncle who died of AIDS when he was 36 years old, and this was an issue that has impacted my whole life and got me involved in medicine. So I, was involved with I don't know if I'm uh, familiar with Bagley. Uh, as a volunteer and as, a, as someone who got a health commission. Look into so, health was a, a group that we uh, supported. Um, you know, been, very, uh, been, been had so meetings with the Boston Gay Men's Choir. I'm a member of residents in my district who continue to engage me and to fight for more, uh, you know, increased funding for the cultural and for cultural events in the arts and state house. Thanks for the question. In particular, I most recently worked with, in partnership with the City of Boston on a youth demonstration project around homelessness that focused particularly on our youth, unaccompanied youth, who are identifying as part of the LGBTQI community. And the two organizations that were particularly uh, uh, interested in that piece and, and supported us in that work, and we supported them in that work, and getting a several million dollar grant to support their efforts around housing for the, that, uh, the LGBTQ youth community in particular with Y2Y and Bridge Over Troubled Waters, and their very specific work in that space. 
right, here's another lightning round question. Can you tell Oh, nice. That's another great organization. And all right, last lightning round question. Tell me, you don't have to name the person, but the person who, for you, became the entryway for you to understanding LGBTQI life, LGBTQI culture, whatever that sort of tipping point person was uh, that you met in your lifetime that helped you to understand the issue. We'll start with you, Chief Faust. Uh, college. Um, he was uh, he was older than me. Uh, he was my he was one of my big brothers in college, and he not only helped me understand the issues. He, in many ways, uh, we traveled the country, uh, visiting safe spaces, visiting different communities, talking about specific local issues, and I, I owe him a great great uh, some great debt. Thank you, Representative Santiago. Uh, yeah, my patients, uh, particularly one um, uh, uh, transgender uh, black. Uh, I'm laughing that John found a way to mention he's a doctor in this response. Been, uh, just riddled with a whole bunch of issues with respect to domestic violence and homelessness and health issues. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, too, I mean, she was uh, the one that, in my education space, just seeing her resilience and, and, and showing up and ready to take on the challenges of life is inspiring to, and, uh, to help an education. And it's been thanks to her. Thank you. Thank you. Council Wu? I just, I want to give a shout out and honor the, um, the memory and legacy of the late Barbara Hoffman, who was uh, a neighbor in the South End when I lived in the South End, and just the time I was able to spend with her, not just not just thinking about Boston's activism and how involved she still was, uh, but the legacy of what ha what has happened in Massachusetts and has been driven by activism right in our in our neighborhoods in the city. Thank you, Councilor. Um, well, first, a, a family friend who spent some time living in my childhood home um, really sort of informed me and educated me, but more so than that. Uh, many students that I taught during my 13 years teaching at East Boston High to see sort of the, the, the challenges and the, the conflict and the, the barriers to access, not just certain social And Anissa found a way to twist the question to mention that she used to be a teacher. Some of the trauma and drama of going home at the end of the day and then starting that all over the very next day. But, you know, just grateful for all of the friendships um, and family who have really taught me um, more about uh, the, the, the very wonderful yet uh, sometimes very difficult experience being a member of the LGBTQI community. Thank you. All right, I'm going to end the forum there. I'm trying to look at your question, what? Yeah, John um, John pres pre uh, presents much better than he is. He really doesn't, there's, there's, there's no reason for him to be in the race, to be honest. There is no novel idea. He doesn't have a chance of winning. There are no real strong policies that he's advocating for, a vision for the city. I do think a lot of it is just to get his name out there um, and, and fundraise. But he, he presents as a authentic person, but he just doesn't have any real strong policies or vision as to why he's running in the first place. Oh, yes, I, I know who you're referring to now. The the name escapes me, but that was a very sad story. I, I know what you're referring to now. But I'm going to end it there. I apologize for the tech difficulties. So for the podcast people, my heart goes out to you if you stuck it through to the end. But have a good night.